Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how does Ireland deal with sex offenders after prison? Today's episode, obviously by the title, is a challenging one. When high-profile people are in the news because of crimes they have committed, they often get disproportionate attention. However, it can also be an opportunity to focus the national conversation on the more difficult aspects of the justice system. Tom Humphreys was known as one of Ireland's finest sports riders when he was accused of grooming and the defilement of a child. His case took years to get through the courts and he eventually pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Last week, after 22 months in the Midlands, he was released. At that stage, we found out that he had not taken part in a rehabilitation programme offered to some sex offenders. And his release comes against a backdrop of a number of vigilante attacks on other convicted sex offenders in Dublin. It's an incredibly complex policy area fraught with emotion, not just on the part of victims and their families, but something that people in communities and wider society also feel. There is fear and also at times, and understandably, a wish for revenge or or retribution. So how does a country deal with all of that? Tom Humphreys is not the first convicted sex offender to be released to live in our world again, and he's obviously not the last. To explain what currently is done in Ireland with this population, I'm joined in studio by the Journal.ie senior reporter Michelle Hennessy, Eileen Finnegan, the clinical director of One in Four and the creator of the Phoenix Programme for Offender Treatment and Intervention, and Fina Nikonaja, executive director of the Irish Penal Reform Trust. You're all very welcome. Michelle, I'll turn to you first. Could you briefly tell us um, who Tom Humphreys is and what the case was about? Right. So as you mentioned, Tom Humphreys uh, was before this quite a well-respected sports journalist, uh, former Irish Times sports journalist. And in 2017, he was convicted uh, after pleading guilty to six offences dating from uh, 2010 and 2011, including sexual exploitation and defilement of a child. Now, he had met his victim when she was 14 years old and he met her through his involvement um, in underage GA teams. He was a, a volunteer coach with those teams. And uh, this is where the contact started through text messages um, over a number of years. The first time uh, that he sexually abused her was when she was 16 years old. And over the course of that trial, we heard that um, during a three month period alone, there were 16,000 text messages between Humphreys and this teenage girl. People were were surprised to read. Um, He did plead guilty, but then when he was offered a rehabilitation program and we read that he was quite suitable for it, um, he didn't participate. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and, and what it does? Right, so the, the program's called the Building Better Lives Program. Um, this is offered um, to sex offenders by the Irish Prison Service while they're in prison. Now, Humphreys was arguably a perfect candidate for the Building Better Lives Program. He, he meets a lot of the, the criteria. Um, but it, it's one of those programs that... You know, there isn't a huge amount of engagement from the offenders. Just 31 offenders engaged in all or part of the scheme last year. And the numbers have been smaller in previous years. And to put that into context, there are more than 400 sex offenders uh, in prison at any one time. Now, this programme is uh, in three parts. It involves psychologists, probation officers. Uh, Later on, um, there would be family meetings. And then the the sort of last part of the programme would involve um, talking about, you know, uh, risk management and also a resettlement plan for the person's release. The Irish Prison Service uh, 
told me the reasons that people don't engage uh, and the reasons that the numbers might be quite low uh, in this programme are, you know, denying that they even did the crime in the first place, a lack of motivation, insufficient time in their sentence. So they need to be in prison for 18 months or more in order to complete the the three parts, Um, a lack of suitability due to an appeal of their conviction or just the general complexity of their case. There might be other reasons. So they said 75% of the sex offender population are not suitable to engage in the programme for these reasons. And when it comes to people denying having done the crime, that is actually something that the Irish Prison Service is looking at at the moment. So they told me that they have engaged uh, an international expert in relation to what they term categorical deniers uh, and, you know, the, the treatment and management of these people in prison, because there are lots of people in prison who who deny that they did it and were convicted anyway. Um, and that's, you know, arguably a bigger challenge than dealing with people who have have admitted it and have admitted the harm. What they said, uh, the Irish Prison Service, is that the preliminary findings um, from a deniers programme run in another jurisdiction are positive uh, and that the uh, the Irish Prison Service uh, psychology services see this approach as the next critical step in the treatment and management of sexual violence in custody. Eileen, that that, that programme is not there yet. So what we have, the Better Lives, uh, Bu- Building Better Lives programme, with such a small percentage taking part in it, is there any other than the kind of practical reasons um why do you think it's so unpopular to to take on for the, for those people for that prison population? Yeah, I'm I'm not too sure about the the workings uh, within prison, but I, I would have a general view because I'm also the chair of NOTA, which is the National Organisation for the Treatment of Abusers. So I will be quite involved with a lot of the research. So for a lot of individuals, and, and you're talking about people that deny something, so if people are denying something, one of the very first motivating factors is that somebody takes responsibility for their offending behaviour. And therefore, in admission of that, even though, because a lot of the people that are convicted and go to prison are still saying they didn't do it. So it, it takes a huge amount of courage. And I think it's a great topic that you're talking about because it is, um, you know, it, it, it is quite alarming the amount of individuals that never go through the criminal justice system. So the, the amount of people that do use sex as a coping mechanism and end up as offending. But for a lot of the individuals um, in prison, um, they're not interested. They're not interested in the, uh, the word because in the first instance, a lot of them don't actually believe that they have offended in the first place. They just feel that they're unfortunate that they didn't have maybe a good enough barrister solicitor to get them off. Fina, you'll know more about what actually happens in prison. So generally, is it something that people people would find off-putting to take part in this? Or would there just be a general knowledge anyway that people in there have sex offended if that's what they're in for? Yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's pretty complex here. As Michelle said earlier, there's about 400 people serving sentences uh, who've been convicted of a sexual offence. There's also another group um, who were sentenced for murder for which there was a sexual aspect to it and they're not captured in those figures. Um, of these, around 130 are in Arbel Hill Prison in Dublin and then the the remainder are generally, um, although not exclusively, in Midlands prison. I mean, in a nutshell, people in pri- convicted fe- sex offenders in prison experience unequal treatment mm. within the prison system. What the prison serves, along with the other reasons why people might not engage with the programme, the things that haven't been mentioned are um, insufficient 
prison psychology ratios, um, insufficient staffing to get people down to treatment. Um, you have issues every day. We have 570, so about 14% of the entire prison population are locked up for 19 or more hours a day, including more than 300 for 21 or more hours a day. So these are the challenges maybe that should also be added to why or why not people aren't engaging with programmes. And key here is to get the overall numbers of people in prison down to particularly the less serious of, um, end of offending so that resources can be focused on people who have been convicted of very serious offences and particularly sexual offences. Um, in terms of the unequal treatment, though, that's what we find in Midlands, for example, that people who have been convicted, they're, they're, um, the nature of the offence means that they're categorised as uh, being on, on protection. Now, they might have um, freedom of association with each other, but they are, do have lower access to education, training, workshops, gym, all those things, visits. They also, the strategic review of penal policy in 2014 pointed out that there's no incentive for sex offenders to engage with programmes now, we understand that there is always an issue around voluntary and involuntary participation in treatment programmes, but if there's no incentive at all, this is So there's no early release or anything like that? None, but based on, I mean, it's, it's not written in policy anywhere, but it is widely understood that people who are convicted of, of sexual offences are not able to access programmes like the Community Return Programme. They have little or no access to the open prisons. So they really do have different treatment within the prison system. And that should not be because in all the human rights treaties that we've signed up to, prison conditions cannot be used as further punishment. Is it problematic that they, like you mentioned there, that they all have freedom of movement to talk to each other? So if you have a population of sex offenders and they're only talking to other sex offenders, is that something that creates problems? It's certainly, it's certainly something that's discussed, you know, I mean, freedom, I'm, it's within a very restrictive setting that I, I say that. Um, it, it's a question that comes up, for example, in the US where people have been ghettoised due to things like Megan's Law, which we might come back to later. But there is always an issue if you target and isolate a group and put them together and treat them as pariahs, mm. there aren't going to be good outcomes. Mm. I, I think as well is that, you know, I, I, I move from the part of, remember, I'm, I'm part of society the individuals that offend are part of our society. We have to in some way take responsibility. What was it that happened in their lives that they ended up? You know, there is that part of, and while I might not know the details about the the programmes in the prison, it's a really, really difficult thing for anyone to do to have to look in a mirror and the reflection back is to say that you have sexually offended. And I think that where we need to be certainly moving is to talk about why is it we don't talk about sex? We don't talk about healthy sex. We're only ever talking about sex when it comes to sexual offending. Yet we have a huge amount of cases. And in in, in a reason in setting up a programme like the Phoenix programme in one and four, I mean, I certainly as, as a member of society and from a large family would have never thought I wanted to work with individuals that offended. However, when victims began to talk about this is someone in our family, this is someone that we know, that took me out of my comfort zone. And in, for somebody to engage in a programme, it is very, very challenging whether people like to hear that or not. It is. It's very, very challenging. You have to look at very dark stuff. So in a prison setting, I sometimes wonder for the emotional part of, you know, you're, you're in maybe in, in a therapeutic group for maybe five hours. What would that be like going back then to your prison cell with other prisoners? 
uh, wanting to know where you were or, or all that stuff. And how do you manage if you're genuinely remorseful, like what you have to look at in yourself is not pleasant. So what space would you have afterwards if there's already a dearth of services within the prison? It's difficult. What is that um, Phoenix program? So that is the, the the one in four program that does work with offenders. What What does that entail? So it's very much about risk management, because as far as we're concerned, the incident has already happened. So what we want to fully understand, and that's why it is so important to work on a programme like this, because I will never understand what it is to feel better by sexually harming a child. And there are individuals that are. So as as a practitioner and in my legacy, I will never know how to fully prevent it from happening unless I actually listen to the people that are telling me how they went about it. And, and I suppose that's the part. So it's very much about risk management um, and managing that for the person I would believe really for the rest of their lives. And it doesn't mean that they can't have a healthy life, but I think they, they, they know themselves, they've given up the right to not be a sex offender. They have used that as a way and we just try to make sure that they find an alternative way to self-soothe other than sexual offending. Yeah, because this is what we'll be mostly talking about today, Michelle, is once people who are convicted of sex offences come out of prison, how can we ensure that they that they don't offend again. Mm. Um, one of the things that we do use and people are aware of is supervision orders. Yeah. Tom Humphreys didn't get one. Why is that? And, and explain what a supervision order actually is. So in some cases, when some offender is being sentenced, and this is something the judge would do when they're sentencing, uh, they would impose a, a supervision order. And it would be a period of time, could be maybe one or two years after a person um, is released from prison, or it might be a part of a suspended sentence. So uh, they might suspend the entire sentence and you know maybe for two years, and they would have have to be supervised in the community. Last year, there were about 390 sex offenders supervised in the community. Uh, And, you know, this is sort of a a multi-agency thing, but a lot of it is done by the Gardaí and... You know, they, they're responsible for um, keeping track of people. The amount of supervision does tend to depend on how high risk somebody is and they'll, they'll do an assessment of that. But, you know, the basic kind of things that they would be responsible for is, you know, keeping track of where somebody's living. Uh, that would be one of the, the vital things. So when somebody's released from prison, and, you know, Tom Humphreys wouldn't have had to do this. Uh, they would have to notify the guards where they're living. Um, and, you know, the, the guard who was assigned to them might go along and have a look at where it is. That There are certain things that they might point out. So if there are a number of other sex offenders living in that particular um, block of flats or that house, they might say, you know, that's not appropriate. If they're living very close to a creche or a school and it's a child sex offender, the the guard might say again, you know, that's not appropriate. And on another level, it's probably not good for you to be in this situation for your own rehabilitation. But they are kind of limited in how they can enforce that as well. Like they can't actually force the person to move out of there um, because, you know, it would be the responsibility of the guard to find them somewhere else to live. And they also couldn't be responsible for making somebody homeless. And, you know, something that I was talking to a guard about before we did the podcast um, in, after I had done the, the article was, you know, that their resources just don't enable them to do the kind of um, monitoring that society might like them to do. Um, he was saying that there was a guard he knew of, now this is going back a few years, um, who was responsible for about 50 sex offenders in her area um, 
on top of the other work, the other general work that she had to do as part of her job. Um, so, you know, th- there are definite limitations there when it comes to resources and the powers that they have as well. Yeah, if, if you're looking after 50 sex offenders, Fina, you'd, you'd need to know the risk priorities, I guess. Uh, what are the recidivism rates amongst this population? They are e- extremely low. They're, what what we find, what is really important to do is to drill down into the actual information that's given. So, for example, some years back, there was a recidivism rate of 30% that was widely broadcast, so one in three. But all of those, or none of those, was for a further subsequent sexual offence. Um, most of the majority were for road traffic offence or public order offences. So it's really important. And this, you know, the, the failure to drill down into the statistical information just gives disproportionate fear among the general public. And in particular around the stranger danger, which mm. is coming up here, you know. Mm. Um, the Rape Crisis Network of Ireland is quite clear. They, they're statistically, they said, um, 85% of per- per- perpetrators knows the victims, 19% of adults experience stranger danger rape and 1% of child uh, child survivors aged under eight, under 13. So it's a bit of an issue that we're kind of, we're responding to unclear information with disproportionate fear and that is diverting attention away and resources away from where it should be. So where we do need to direct resources are clearly the restoration of funding to victim support services where, you know, it was good news in, in the last year that the government has committed to, to resourcing a new savvy report so we will actually have the detail on the extent and prevalence of, of sexual offending in, in, in Ireland. Uh, we need to see investment in child protection services. I mean, that is crucial. We need investment in crime prevention, detection, prosecution, investment in prison treatment services and regimes. And absolutely key is this well-resourced post-release supervision and mentoring in the community because this is what keeps people safe. Mm -hmm. It is very much dependent also on the age so the highest level of of risk are the 18 to 24, 24, 25 year olds and there will be lots of reasons for that. They probably haven't been in stable relationships um, work, all of those uh, external factors. Um, However with intervention and the government have, you know, the, the policy here is we, we now have an intervention for 16 year olds and, and the new national policy. Now, it, it's not good enough to say it's up to only 16. Yet, I think it's really important for people to realise there are huge intervention programmes already. There are, are two services and a lot of services in Ireland that work with children, which I found quite difficult even to understand myself children with sexually harmful behaviour, maybe as young as five and six and seven. I mean, I didn't even think that that was possible. Um, Fina's stats there show that most, and I think most of us know this, most abuse happens within families and perpetrators are generally known to their victims. If they are convicted and they are released from prison, um, how do they... How do how are you received back in the community? What is if you were th- thinking best practice? If we could all be as empathetic as we should be, and we're we can all see sex offenders as people, and we, and we should be caring for them as much as we care for the rest of society. What should happen? Uh, well, I, I don't know if we all necessarily need to be empathic. I think that what, if any message I would want to get out to society is that we are beginning to risk manage. And I think that's what society needs to hear. And when I do the statistics every year, I, it is absolutely shocking as I write, you know, offender is a father, a brother, a mother, an uncle. So that makes it very real for me because I have all of those. 
Mm. I have all of those people in my life. Um, and I think that for somebody, so for a family, I think the biggest part in a family or, or the difficulty is families are so afraid to say that the individual is in the, in the house because of the retaliation and because society is afraid, we don't know what harm somebody is to do. We don't know what programs are on. We don't know that. And I'm no different to anyone else. Like uh, my first question and asking whatever about a sex offender living near you is like, has he been involved in any program and has he been risk managed? Mm-hmm. And if so, by whom? Mm-hmm. Is that information that's available? I mean, what I what I think it's really important is that it's left to those who have the expertise to risk management in the community, you know, and that is the SORAM uh, approach, which is a joint interagency approach uh, led by Angarda Siakana, the probation service, TUSLA, the HSC. Um, and this is absolutely crucial. And yes, the powers could be be strengthened for Gardaí to be able to um, um, intervene if somebody is, is living or notifies them that they're living in a place that perhaps isn't in the best interest of everybody around. And we do believe that the Gardaí should be able to, on a case-by-case basis and senior level guardie to inform individuals if that's deemed that it would enhance public safety. But one thing we are absolutely sure is vigilantism and also just the wide publication of the whereabouts and the locations of individuals is not serving public safety. Mm. And that's where you have to divide the public interest from what the public is interested in deeply problematic. Can I just add to this? I also think it's important to listen to what crime survivors mm. are asking for, because often you get this knee jerk kind of lock them up forever. And it's failing to recognise just exactly the, the trauma and difficulty of when it happens within families or within small communities. The fact that victims are still living in those communities later on. I mean, the, there's very little or not enough research done in Ireland on what crime survivors want. In the US, we know by um, uh, of two to one that they prefer investment and rehabilitation over punishment. We also, I'm I'm always struck here how the Rape Crisis Network Ireland and the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre have raised concerns about knee-jerk legislative responses such as Mm. mandatory sentencing or obligations on reporting and publication of information and they say that this will not help crime survivors Mm. and victims of these offences and yet they're not heeded to. So... Yeah, a couple of those laws um, that we hear a lot about are Megan's law and, and Sarah's law. Michelle, will you just run us through what they actually mean and what they would entail? Yeah, so I think one of the things that is part of the conversation here is people wanting to know if there's a sex offender living in their community, living next door to them. Um, and so they'll, they'll know that in the States, for example, um, because of Megan's law, there are uh, public sex offender registers that people can look up, you know, down the street if there's a sex offender who's moved in they will know and that will not just contain child sex offenders that list will contain people who who anyone who's been convicted um of a, of a sexual offense um and also part of the problem with that in the states has been uh you know somebody who who was a teenager who had sex with their teenage girlfriend or boyfriend could also have been convicted of that and appear in one of these lists and you know be potentially deemed a paedophile um, later in life. There's an interesting part of this. Uh, there was a podcast that I listened to last year, actually, about the uh, the case of an 11-year-old boy called Jacob Wetterling. Now, he was kidnapped and murdered in 1989 in Minnesota. And his uh, parents and his mother, Patty, in particular, was one of the leaders um, of the, the campaign that eventually led to Megan's Law. But she's been critical of Megan's Law. And um, 
it's not actually what she wanted. And the original legislation, which was named after Jacob, it actually involved more state monitoring, more checks on the offenders' addresses. Um, so every, every 10 years, uh, the, the authorities would have to check in to, to see where they were living, um, more rigorous requirements for the offenders. And there was an option rather than a requirement for the authorities to notify people um, to, or to release that information to the public that where they were living, um, that there was a sex offender in the community. And it was actually fascinating to hear from, you know, the, the mother of a little boy who had been kidnapped and murdered and his remains were only found in 2016. So she's really been through the mill. Fascinating to hear from her that, you know, she thought that this actually probably caused more harm. What she actually wanted was for sex offenders to be rehabilitated. You know, ultimately for her, she doesn't want any other parent to go through what she went through or any other children to suffer what her son suffered. I think that's really important. And I think that when, you know, we're talking about individuals that are coming out of prison, I think it's really important to note. And, and Fina, you talked a little bit about mandatory reporting. When mandatory reporting came in, you know, it properly in Ireland, although one in four would always have had a mandatory reporting policy. One of the things is that a lot of the victims, and that is how a programme began, one of the victims or some of the victims began to say, how come we have to come to therapy? How come we're the people that are sitting here hour after hour? How come they get off the hook? And for a lot of individuals and especially because it is family they don't necessarily want to go through the criminal justice mm. and not only because of what's going to happen or in the family if their brother or their father goes to prison going through the criminal justice system for a victim is a horrendous absolutely horrendous uh, prospect and when you hear something like megan's law mm. you you do think, well, yeah, I would like to know if there's someone living mm. beside me, particularly if I have children or if yeah. I'm going to be at home by myself. I think you have to trust that the authorities and the agencies with the expertise will let you know if mm. there is a risk that's concerned. But they have to be resourced to be able to do that, you know. And this is the issue is that oftentimes the things, the knee-jerk responses, the mandatory sentencing, the, uh, the ability for people to request information are all diverting resources away from where they would be better put. I think as a society, you'd be shocked to hear and sitting in this room looking at you all, you'd be surprised, you know, to actually know there are lots of people that probably live near you and around you that have sexual offence that you will never know because their victim won't go through the criminal justice system mm. or doesn't want to report it. Mm. And whether we like to hear that or not. Do you get any blowback for providing this service or Fina, you can jump in here as mm. well. Are, do any of the programmes that are set up, do they get blowback from people in the community or from... Um, other people that they are working with sex offenders that, you know, people might say, well, you should just leave them to perish. <laughs> I think that there there is loads of feedback and certainly in my role as the chair of NOTA, that would be something that I would be very aware of. And we had, um, you know, we had a, a lot of instances last year uh, where it was it became known that there was uh, people that were um, involved in a, a programme uh, the locals find out. And I think I can, so there, there's, you know, I, I have the two sides. One I can fully understand is because people don't know enough about like what is, you're asking the questions, what is a programme? What do people have to go through? The people in one and four will be on a programme for maybe four or five years. And I think it's really important for me. I would have never, um, in, in my role and, and in my background as a psychotherapist, I would have never thought I would have been working with individuals that had offended. It was only when families came and they asked the question, can you help us to stay safe? One of the things I'm quite struck by talking, because we're talking about um, a more general population, Eileen, you're saying, you know, there are people everywhere, you know, mm. they could be living beside us and we don't know. Um, the people we do know are, are priests and, and that's mm. a lot of your work was initially with 
um, cases of, of Catholic church abuse. Is it different treating priests after they have convicted and other members of the population? I think it's a very interesting question because, yes, I would feel it's different. And also, I think that we need to really learn about what the Catholic Church did. And if you're looking at that as a family and a system, and we want to try and do now the complete opposite to what they did, they hit people and then transfer them. And what we're trying to do within families and everything is don't do that. We know it didn't actually work. And for a lot of priests, if that was the system that you were in, that the system protected you and, you know, defended did you had the best um, lawyers or whatever, but also, and that doesn't mean that individuals within the church that had offended took responsibility. I think it is different. And I think what the difference is because of the system, it wasn't accountable. The system allowed them off the hook as well. And if there's anything for me, it is about learning from that and, and to try to say to families and, and all people out there that know someone, it's like that hasn't worked. And those individuals went on and reoffended um, on many, many, many accounts and sometimes all over the world. Yeah. And and we are seeing that even within families now that there are a lot of historical mm. um, sexual abuse cases coming up, Fina, because people now feel they can say it or, or they realise it's wrong. Um, how are they being dealt with in the criminal justice system and what difficulties do they bring up? Yeah, and I think all, all the evidence is that it is so important for victims to have the harm that was caused to them acknowledged and the people who caused them harm, that they're, they are held accountable. And this is a really important part of it. But we certainly, we do need to have a national conversation about the very elderly and um, at what point prison is not an appropriate mm. response. Um, at, at one end, towards the end of the sentence, that uh, people who are convicted of sex offences of sex offences will have difficulty accessing nursing home care and hospice care. So that's a real challenge. Mm. And that's after they have served their sentence. Is that because people don't want sex offenders in in their nursing homes? Absolutely. Uh, well, people mm. convicted of of historical sex offences that might have been 30, 40, 50 years previously, you know, so it's not related to immediate risk. It's definitely looking at the person front as somebody who, who is... Um, always going to be branded in that way and it is problematic because it is not in any way related to the risk to other residents. You know there are four purposes of prison, their deterrence, incapacitation, rehabilitation and retribution. In the case of historical sexual offences I think it's, it's looking at retribution because incapacitation so that's where a person cannot cause further harm because they're literally in prison. If you're talking about somebody with dementia who's incontinent, who can't care for his or herself or walk across the room the the risk the actual risk of further reoffending is is negligible you know it doesn't exist so it is a question about re, re, retribution and what actually contributes to the well-being and healing of the the crime survivor and only crime survivors can answer that question mm. but it's really important that we ask them mm. michelle we've talked a lot about vigilantism and the, and the problems around it what mm. examples have we had recently so one that people might remember in July last year, there were a few protests outside a clinic in Sally Noggin in Dublin, um, which is run by a company that offers psychological services to sex offenders. Um, and, you know, this was all over social media at the time. There were videos and photos from the protests outside. The activists involved, they locked the gates uh, with bicycle locks and they broadcast videos of them confronting staff who were on their way into work. And the guardie were actually called to one of the protests. There was another um, incident in February this year where there, there was a man uh, who was assaulted after one of these 
so-called paedophile hunter groups broadcast a live video of them confronting him. Um, now, in, in those cases, which we're seeing a lot more of actually um, on, on Facebook in particular, these groups pretend sort of with a, a decoy child or teenager and they, they talk to uh, people who are either suspected or who have previously been convicted of, of sexual offences. And they would, you know, after some kind of an inappropriate conversation, they would then publicly confront this person after arranging a meeting between the guy and, you know, maybe a decoy teenage girl who they think they've been talking to. Uh, there are problems, obviously, with that um, because... You know, this isn't somebody who has actually been interacting with a real child or teenager. Um, so when the Gardaí are called, which they usually are in these circumstances, because it gets quite heated. I mean, the groups themselves actually tend to call the Gardaí to report the person and they hand over whatever evidence they have. Because there isn't an actual physical real life victim, it's very difficult for the guards to, to prosecute that person. Th- there was another example recently uh, in North Dublin, a, a serial sex offender um, who's, you know, a very one of these really high profile people who was released from prison um, not too long ago was set upon by a group of locals after it emerged that he was living in the area. So that was um, another example where word spread on social media. There are all these sort of community groups um, on Facebook and they were all telling each other or through WhatsApp groups, local WhatsApp groups. You know, the, because this, that's this that guy was there. fear again about yeah. serial, particularly serial sex offenders. Yeah. And this guy in particular was convicted of um, very violent, particularly heinous uh crimes and you know there was an awful lot of of fear involved now he he was also um harassing the the next door neighbors uh, which which didn't help mm. the situation um and they just wanted him out of there and he he was you know forced out of that house that he was living in now what service providers and experts in the area have said is that housing sex offenders is already extremely difficult. I mean, anybody to, to get a place to live, uh, particularly if we're talking about Dublin in the, the climate of this housing crisis that we have now is difficult. Never mind somebody who's just been released from, from prison, maybe after spending a couple of years there. Never mind somebody who's been convicted of this type of offence. A lot of people listening won't feel sorry for them. They'll no, be like, boohoo. Absolutely. But, but what are the policy implications of that? Then? And you can understand people not feeling sorry for them. People don't want um, or wouldn't like the idea of their tax money being used to pay for, you know, a free house for a sex offender or even being used to pay for mental health services for a sex offender when we have lots of children on, you know, six month waiting lists for those types of services. But the reality is all of the experts in this area are saying, if you cannot house these people, if, you know, they're forced out and then they become homeless, they're living in hostels, they're in some kind of a precarious living situation, they are much more likely to reoffend. That's a good place to end, I think. Thanks so much for coming in, Eileen, Fiona and Michelle. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. This episode was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. A big thank you to Michelle, Eileen and Fina for all their work. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and we'll be back next week with a brand new topic. In the meantime, check out some of our other episodes. Last time, we learned all things Neolithic and Megalithic as we discussed new discoveries at Newgrange. And there are a few Brexit shows there for you too, including one on exactly what the backstop is. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.